welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Panther Podcast, a podcast where we are striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am Joe Smith, one of your co-hosts, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in the beautiful, wonderful Marion, Indiana, which we all know at this point is, in fact, the promised land of the North. Joe, who are we interviewing today? Today we have the wonderful privilege of interviewing Pastor Steve Bradley. He is the pastor of Providence RPC right around the Pittsburgh area. Steve, how, how far is Providence? I mean, is it technically Pittsburgh or... Yeah, we're just outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool deal. So it is our privilege to have Pastor Steve Bradley with us today. And Steve, as uh, as mentioned, kind of one of the purposes of our podcast is to introduce members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA. And I think one of the questions that I, I've at least gotten positive feedback from from people listening to us are when we have asked a couple guys uh, just to tell our listeners uh, or the people like to hear uh, how our pastors came to know the Lord and some of the background of their calling to ministry. Those have at least been some of the questions where I've gotten really good feedback on. And so we I don't think we asked that one enough, but it came to mind uh, when I was thinking through, we were thinking through questions for you. And so we were wondering if you could start off here and tell our listeners uh, how you came to know the Lord and what your calling to pastoral ministry looked like. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, it all goes back to uh, when I was quite young. I mean, I was probably maybe six or so years old, uh, living in uh, La Palma, California. And um, there was a, 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 a uh, ministry coming through our neighborhood, Calvary Baptist Ministry. Uh, and they were knocking on doors and uh, just getting to know folks and invite people to church. And uh, we weren't going to church at that time. My mom and dad uh, were nominal Christians. I mean, just uh, mostly name only. And um, so they didn't go to worship. And and uh, But uh, when this uh, th this ministry came around, uh, they, uh, my mom answered the door that day and they invited these folks into our home. And I remember one of the guys uh, giving a gospel presentation and uh, asking if, you know, I wanted to pray. And, um, you know, you did, you, you, I did what, uh, what I, you know, I, I, you know, heard the message and I you know, prayed and said, yeah, I believe it, you know? And um, so I don't know if that's when the Lord actually converted my soul or not, but uh, I do remember my, that's my first uh, memory of, uh, of, uh, you know, praying to the Lord in a way that was significant. Um. And uh, from that time forward, uh, they had a bus ministry that would come around. So again, my parents didn't go to church, uh, but they were happy to put us on the bus each Lord's Day and <laughs> let them take us off to church. And so we did that. And um, I did that all through my uh, my teen years. Um, and uh, somewhere along the line, uh, my cousin got involved in a Calvary Chapel uh, congregation near where we lived. And uh, so I started attending there as a teenager, and uh, very quickly, uh, the Lord um, began to impress upon my heart uh, a love for His Word uh, and a desire to uh, to share His Word with others. And um, I came under the 
um, instruction of a, of a youth pastor there who was very influential in my life. And he took me under his wing and basically mentored me. And uh, through the years, uh, as I got older, he would give me opportunity to to speak to the youth group and to uh, give Bible studies and things like that. And uh, that just was, uh, the more I, I, the more I did that, the more a sense of a calling I, I had towards, uh, towards serving the Lord in that capacity. But having said that, even during those years, I, I had a, something, um, a, a um, I don't know what you call it. Um, uh, I wasn't uh, walking with the Lord as closely as I should have been uh, through those years. So I had a sort of a, being pulled in two different directions uh i was um you know somewhat worldly on the one hand and uh on the other i felt this really strong sense of wanting and desiring to serve god um and uh so uh after some time uh struggling with that the lord finally did impress upon me um uh, the desire to to go off to bible college and so i went off to um uh, calvary chapel bible college up in Twin Peaks, California, and um, while I was there, uh, you know, it was it, it, <laughs> strange enough. Uh, while I that, that school, as you might know, uh, in that whole uh, denom- non-denomination denomination, mm-hmm. uh, there are many in dispensational and, and all of that. And um, and uh, while I was there, though, um, I was at the library one day, and I looked over and I saw uh, R.C. Sproul's book, "Chosen by God," on the shelf. And the reason it was there was because the previous administration um, had left, and they were basically five, four and a half, five point Calvinists, or whatever you want to call them. The new administration was anti-Calvinism, but they had not gone through all the library and, and what have you to remove everything from the former. Mm-hmm. So this was residue, and uh, the Lord used that. I got hold of that book, and I was a changed man after that. I mean, I, from that point forward, I uh, just learned more and more about the doctrines of grace and. I um, found myself in uh, debate after debate uh, with you know, fellow students there at the school uh, to the point where I, I found myself not being able to stay there the whole term. Uh, I was there, for, I think it was a two and a half year term. I was there for a couple of years, I think. But uh, So I left a little bit early, and, but that's where I also met my wife. And uh, my wife was attending there as well. And uh, so uh, after, um, after that occurred and not being able to, in good conscience, sign their statement of faith uh, in order to be able to serve in a Calvary chapel, um, I, you know, I thought that was it. I thought, well, I guess I don't know what to do. I don't know what a reformed church is. I don't know what to look for in a church. I mean, I just know I'm reformed. And um, so I, I, my wife and I got married. Uh, we started attending various churches. Um, we, uh, at one point where we ended up at, uh, Hal Lindsay's church, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were there and I was actually serving in their youth group there, uh, for uh, a little bit, but during that time there, even the Lord, uh, once again, uh, you know, he fanned the flame again with regard to serving him. Uh, I was involved in various, um, uh, Bible studies in, in, in people's homes there. Uh, and had a lot of affirmation about the Lord's uh, gifting uh, uh, upon me in that in that regard. Uh, so that uh, put us in a place where we had to start thinking more seriously once again about what what are we what am I going to do? Uh, my wife was always supportive uh, from the you know time she met me. She she uh, had sensed that I would be eventually uh, serving the Lord and as a pastor somewhere. And uh, but we just weren't sure how that was going to work out. We because uh, after we left college, we both got jobs in the, in the secular world and. Uh, worked in uh, computer industry uh, uh, during that time. Um, 
and for a few years. Uh, but, uh, and in the midst of that, I know this is a long story, but in the midst of that, uh, we, uh, my wife worked for a company, um, that, uh, decided to relocate to Arizona. So we were living in Southern California at the time. Um, and uh, they gave us just a, just a, I mean, a, a package that you couldn't say no to. Uh, so we, we went uh, to Arizona and uh, spent a couple years there. And while we were there, we, uh, we discovered a PCA congregation there. And uh, that was my first real exposure. Well, I wouldn't say it. I, uh, I won't say anything, but there was a, prior to that, I, we did meet an OP minister and um, uh, uh, Pastor Paul Vigiano uh, of uh, OP Church in Torrance, uh, California, uh, Branch of Hope. Uh, we went there before they were OP. Uh, so uh, that was another exposure that we got a little bit towards the Reformed faith. But the PCA church, though, was the first actual Reformed church. Uh, that we belonged to. And um, it was there that I had, again, opportunity to serve the Lord uh, as uh, in the youth ministry uh, area and uh, became really tight with my pastor there. He was a, he's a godly man and uh, just a, a wonderful example, role model, um, and, and a huge blessing to me during that time. Uh, so I came under care uh, of that session uh, as a student of theology and uh, started to think about what seminary I was going to go to. And uh, as I was looking for seminaries, um, I uh, I was I was sort of limited because I didn't have a I had gone I had uh, I didn't have an undergrad degree, so I had gone to some community college and the, the Bible college that I went to was non-accredited, so I didn't really have anything to amount to a degree. You're speaking or, of the choir. Neither Joe or I have an undergrad either. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I was as you guys know, then you're mm -hmm. pretty limited on what uh, schools you can go to uh, as far as seminaries. Uh, and, uh, so I had limited my choices down to, uh, this place called RPTS and, uh, and Greenville. Uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, so I visited both. I went and visited Greenville Presbyterian and, uh, really liked it. It was good. Uh, it was fine. But at the time though, prior to going out there, I'd already started to delve into exclusive psalmody. And the reason, um, the, the, the thing that sparked my interest in that was coming across, uh, our seminary's website way back when websites were crude, I mean, they were just like silly looking things, but RPTS, even back then had a website and um, on that website, uh, you know, the, one of the prominent things about it stood out to me was this, this aspect of psalmody. And I can't remember why it was so prominent, but it was. And I began talking with my pastor about that and he didn't seem to know a whole lot about it. And so I got a hold of Bouchelle's book, started reading Songs of Zion. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, before you know it, I mean, like I, I'm like I'm there, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is this is what I believe. So as I visited Greenville, I was thinking I think I could still go there and have this conviction. They're pretty, they're pretty solid in allowing that kind of thing over there. And I thought maybe there's could be a place in the even in the PCA for me, maybe um, with these convictions. But then I went and visited RPTS, and in God's good providence, I visited the school in the midst of a snowstorm out here. And uh, the people we got uh, that hosted us were um, Dave and Elka Reese. I don't know if you know the Reeses, uh, but uh, Dave is a, is, a, is a dear brother, uh, and I've just grown to love him over the years more and more. But uh, we didn't know it. that They went to the same Bible college we did, oh, hmm. uh, and they uh, maybe three years before we got there. Hmm. Uh, they He and his wife uh, 
they were involved in the same groups in the same areas of life down there in Southern California, the beach we all hung out at the same beaches and everything, but never during all those years, never crossed paths. And, uh, and here it is a snowstorm in Pittsburgh and we end up in each in, in their house uh, and uh, just uh, the, the marvelous providence of God in this. And they were just such, they are such a godly family that um, my wife and I were just extremely impressed with like, if, if this, if this is the kind of people, if this is the sort of people that um, are, belong to this denomination and have these convictions, we, I, I just thought, you know, this is it where I, I don't have to think anymore about this. We're going to RPTS. So um, then I, I did, we moved out here and we uh, started going, I started going to seminary. And while in seminary, uh, I got involved in this work here at Providence. It was a church plant and it just organized right around the time that um, uh, that I started attending. What, what, what year was that, Steve? That would have been uh, right around 99 or 99. so, maybe, yeah, 99, um, maybe 2000. Um, because I graduated in 02. Uh, but um, so while I was attending Providence, though, uh, I had the opportunity and I was called to serve uh, the church as a ruling elder uh, during that time here. So I got uh, became very close with uh, with CJ, who was the pastor, CJ Williams, who was the mm -hmm. pastor here, um, and uh, had just a wonderful, strong bond with him and his family and, and just really appreciated his ministry. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, I was, uh, th that ministry was unlike anything I'd ever been under. I mean, I really just, uh, CJ is a phenomenal mm -hmm. uh, uh, pastor, preacher, uh, teacher, you know, he just knows the word so well. And I, Julie and I had never been under that kind of teaching ever. And I was just, wow, blown away. And then even more blown away that I got the opportunity to serve uh, on session with him and uh, uh, President O'Neill, Terry O'Neill was one of the ruling elders during that time as well. I served with him during that time. Um, so then, uh, as I was approaching uh, graduation, I started to get involved in a work up here in Cranberry. Uh, we were trying to plant a church in that area. And um, uh, through various things that occurred, it ended up becoming obvious that the Lord wasn't going to have me to serve there uh, as a pastor. Uh, so I started candidating, and that's when uh, I got opportunity to go candidate at Trinity RP in um, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my first call. So right upon yeah. right, right upon graduation, I ended up uh, going there to serve in my first pastorate. I served there for about 11 or 12 years and then um, got called back here to uh, Providence to, to get uh, the opportunity to, to come and reunite with the folks here. And I've been serving here now at Providence for uh, just um, about 10 years now. And no, that was that was great. That was perfect. Is it true also that you guys are in a, a relatively new building? Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, <laughs> during our initial years, we worshiped in some pretty wild places. Uh, the most, the wildest I would say is uh, we worshiped in a funeral home. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was here in South Hills. And we did that for a while. Um, uh, eventually, uh, right, a, right about the time, I think just before I left, we had, um, we had bought a building in Brookline. Uh, which was a little little area uh, right uh, right in the city, actually. And um, that served us well for a number of years, but it was an extremely old building. Uh, I mean, the staircase uh, going down to the basement was treacherous. I mean, and uh, it was, um, there were, you know, we thank the Lord for it. And they did, um, over the years, we made a huge transformation of that building from what it originally was to, to what it was when we uh, sold it. 
Um, so a lot of improvements, but uh, but it still had a lot to to, to be desired. Our, our parking lot maybe could have hit fit uh, twenty or so cars. Uh, it was just rough, and neighbors didn't care for uh, Lord's days because uh, so many visitors would be coming and parking in front of their houses, <laughs> and uh, it just uh, yeah, it just it was it was rough. But yeah, we're now in Carnegie, and uh, we we have a building up there. And uh, it's marvelous. I mean, we just are so thankful to God. How it happened is just crazy. Um, we would never would have thought in a million years this was even feasible. And it's uh, and it's feasible without having to be crazy in debt or something like this mm-hmm. to to get to get in there. Uh, so we're thankful to God for the many people that contributed uh, so faithfully to get us there. And and here we are. We've been there for uh, I guess almost a year now, or yeah, a year now. Uh, and it's been nothing but a, a blessing to us. Did did I hear you right that you were ordained as a teaching elder in the middle of seminary? No, ruling elder. No, ru- ru- okay, ru- right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. ruling elder. That's, yep. what I meant. Mm-hmm. that's that's pretty unique. I mean, you have a lot of guys who are ruling elders who come into the seminary to get a degree and um, go on to serve in a teaching elder capacity. Um, I mean, time is running short, but I'm actually really interested. What what did that look like for you as a seminary student and serving as a ruling elder at the same time? Yeah, it was wild. Uh, <laughs> it was wild, uh, and I, I was sharing a, a, an experience that kind of ma- helps you to feel that tension. Uh, I remember being at a presbytery meeting, and I was uh, one of the delegates uh, from our congregation. And um, <laughs> it came time for uh, uh, the uh, somebody called for executive session, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know they're escorting everybody out of the out of the room who shouldn't be there, and I was asked to leave the room. Uh, and, uh, you know, here I am, I'm a ruling elder, I'm mm. ordained as a ruling elder and it wasn't about me and it wasn't about, you know, anything dealing with, uh, with, with my, uh, exams or anything like that. Uh, but it was just really strange. It was an awkward moment in, in my, uh, in my time as a ruling elder where I, you know, I thought, well, I, I mean, technically I think it was wrong to dismiss me and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I might've made that case if I hadn't been a student. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever have to vote on uh, like any of your fellow student exams? Yeah, well, that yeah. is awkward. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that was strange. That was strange. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm having trouble remembering, but I'm sure I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, our, our next question. This is a question that uh, we we like to ask <laughs> all of our guys, and sometimes we don't get to it. Um, so I'm glad we're getting to it here. But uh, when it comes to you know you know, the pastors are called to pray and to preach. Um, so particularly on the preaching, what's your philosophy of preaching? That is, how do you think about it? What's the purpose of preaching? What's your aim of preaching? And then that that's kind of more of your theology of preaching, philosophy of preaching. And then how do you go about, um, you know, from Monday to Sunday, that is from the um, study to the pew or the pulpit rather. So what does yeah. your sermon preparation and delivery and all that kind of look like? Okay. Well, yeah. Uh... In my opinion, uh, preaching just simply falls under the um, the heading of, of of public worship, and then so when you think about what the purpose of public worship is, um, it's to uh, it's the same purpose as uh, God has given to us as men as people, uh, and that, that is to glorify God and to uh, you know to to, exp- to give expression to the glory of God in, uh, corporately as the people of God. Uh, so uh, I I, uh, I I approach preaching um, not as a, necessarily just a, uh, an individual uh, 
thing, but as it uh, exists in the bigger picture of what worship is and the purpose of worship. So uh, that the number one thing then has to be when we're coming to the to the scriptures and how how is God going to be glorified? How can we glorify God in uh, handling this passage rightly and uh, in preaching it in a way that will bring honor and glory to Him and and also uh, with that then be a, a great benefit to the people of God that they might grow in grace as a result of hearing it and uh, and even people who might not yet be saved that the the Lord might be pleased to use. Uh, the preaching of his word uh, to bring about salvation. Um, so uh, as as I think about uh, my, um, uh, the way I prepare uh, for preaching, uh, you know, I, typically I'll just begin by taking whatever passages before me um, and ask first, begin with prayer, you know, asking the Lord truly to open my eyes and help me to see the things that uh, he would have me to see. Um Sometimes I'll, as I'm going through it, I might start to think about how to break down the passage, even as I'm reading it for the first few times, but I don't always do that. Um, while reading the passage over, I'll, I'll note things that stand out to me uh, uh, about the passage. I'll, I'll note questions that I have about the text that are head scratchers or, or things that, um, or questions about various words that I might want to look up. Uh, in the original language that um, that might, uh, you know, help in understanding the text better, bringing some clarity to it. Um, even doctrinal questions that might stand out from the text mm -hmm. that, uh, that uh, I would want to answer. Um, and I also try to note questions that I think others in my congregation might have about the text. Um, there might be particular doctrines that, uh, you know, that as pastors, when we're reading the text, wow, you know, we might say this is, you know, the doctrine of X, Y, or Z really is is uh, coming through here, and this might be a, a one of those doctrines that isn't very well known, or or that needs uh, needs, you know, to be taught to the congregation. And so I'll note those also, and uh, take the opportunity as I have them to uh, to bring those into the sermon. Um, uh I a uh, long time ago, uh, I, I forget where uh, where I heard it, but um, I can't attribute it to myself. So, I, but uh, I remember somebody telling me that uh, you know when you when you look at the catechism and how what it teaches us about God's word, uh, you remember the catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? They teach what man is to believe concerning God. That's on the one hand, and then what duties God requires of man. And so sometimes when I have that, uh, when I'm able to keep that focus in mind, I'll approach the text that way too. What are the things we can learn about God uh, from this passage? And then in light of those things, what duties, what application flow from what we learn uh, about our Lord and about what he would exhort us to do from the text? Uh, so I, I try to keep that in front of me um, when I'm uh, uh, preparing sermons. Uh, as far as... Uh, um, Commentaries. Uh, I, I I read a bunch of commentaries, um, depending on the passage, anywhere from ten, maybe sometimes fifteen commentaries. Now, I'm not reading the whole commentary, mm -hmm. just that section, right, that mm -hmm. pertains to to where we are. Uh, I like to read the old guys, uh, the old reformers, but also contemporary reform guys. Uh, I like to read uh, Lutherans. I got the Lenski set. I use him uh, mm -hmm. from time to time. I, I like Baptists. You know, S Spurgeon said on the Psalms is one of the best out there. I think mm -hmm. uh, Gill is is helpful. Um, and as I read my commentaries, I I do so with a pencil in hand. I mark my whoever inherits my library when I go to <laughs> glory. 
uh, is going to get a marked up set of everything. You know, anything I've read, uh, it will it will be obvious I read it. Uh, so I, I I I put notes in the in the in the book and uh, you know I questions or whatever things and then um, uh, if I uh, come across uh, noteworthy quotes that I might want to include in my in my sermon, I'll, I'll I'll make an emphasis to put those down. Um, and of course, you know Spurgeon and Ryle are, are, are among the tops there if you're reading them. Um, Sometimes I'll listen to a sermon or two of other men who've preached on the passage to to see how they approached it. Maybe maybe I've missed something, and maybe or maybe they are, they can lend me some help in how I might approach it. Um, and then finally, after I do all of that, I take all that information and I sit down and transfer my notes and my books over to paper. And then from paper, I sit down to write my manuscript. And um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I I write the whole thing out word for word what what I plan to say on the Lord's Day morning, mm-hmm. um, and that's a, that's it. That's a it's a long tedious process, and and I don't always outline things. So if you listen to my sermons, I'm not like a really great like X point uh, preacher. I, I let the text kind of make that transition and that flow for me. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say, you know, we'll look at this in three parts or or something like this, but not always. I tend to you just usually let the let it kind of play itself out naturally as the text um, as the text lays things out for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Steve, I uh, sometimes will also do what what you do, listening to other guys preach on the same passage. And there was one time I was uh, this was last summer. Um, and I got everything done. The manuscript was written. Everything was just waiting until Sunday morning. And I was cutting the grass on Saturday afternoon. And I was like, I'm just going to pull up a sermon on this text. So I pulled, I forget which one it was, but I pulled up Beaky. And I kid you not, point for point was verbatim the exact same. I thought, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> if someone listens to me and Beaky, they're going to think I ripped Beaky off. So I <laughs> had a little panic attack there. Yeah, that's rough. That's yeah, rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would be, so you mentioned some of the commentaries that you like to go to. Um, what, what are you preaching through right now? And what commentaries have you found to be helpful in that particular book? Okay, so we just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Hmm. Um, and uh, I've been on a topical series. I did some, I did a, I don't know, I don't know how many sermons, probably 10 or so sermons on public worship. So I, we just finished that. And uh, oh, the books are too many for me to, hmm. to say about what I use for that. But uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, yeah, I mean, there, there were a lot of resources uh, that I used for that. If I'm looking here at my books. Lloyd Jones, of course, was uh, helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doriani, Dan Doriani was helpful. Appreciated D.A. Carson's work, Sinclair Ferguson's work, Watson on the Beatitudes from that portion. John Stott uh, has been helpful. Calvin, of course. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of guys that I, I've used. And Hendrickson I, is a mm-hmm. go-to for me uh, mm-hmm. on most things. Again, I mentioned Linsky and and the. Uh, the new international com- uh, commentary said, I don't remember who the, uh, who was it that did the, the Matthew. Uh, is it this? I mean, this is not the Matthew one, but is this the set you're talking about? Or is no, it the, uh, uh, the dark brown one? The, uh, no, the N-I-C-N-T. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah that one. Okay. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful for anybody listening. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm holding <laughs> up books here. All right. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah, no, I, I, I and I, um, you know, I, I used to I used to read more of the old guys and not really give much attention to the more contemporary uh, scholars, but 
I found that to be that's a, that's a mistake. Um, there's there's a mm -hmm. lot that's been done, and I think a lot of helpful ways of looking at the text. And well, I've been just blown away. Carson's one of those guys, and uh, oh, the other one. Um, oh man, his name's not coming to me right now, but it, it will later maybe. Um, but there's been a few guys where I thought, wow, you know, they've really uh, they've really given some helpful information uh, about these passages. Uh, Douglas Moo would be another guy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, yep. he's sometimes I'm like, wow, you know, what these guys find and what they discover. Um, and it's not novel. It's just uh, I think it's more along the lines of like op opening it up and looking at things from different perspectives and uh, really leaning. They're leaning on all the older guys as well, you know. And so it's a it's a it's really an instance where we're standing on the shoulders of one another. And mm -hmm. um, and uh, I never apologize for that. Uh, but I I tell people all the time. You know, uh, whatever you see or whatever you hear, I should say, in my sermons, I mean, that's that, that's the fruit of a number of other men. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't take uh, credit for anything apart from being called to be able to serve it to, to the to the flock and put it together, of course, in a way that that um, you hope will will be most digestible for for the sheep. Um, and of course, your own illustrations and whatever, you know, however, however we speak and putting it together in a way that. Uh, is our voice, but uh, even though it is our voice, I mean, who we would be silly to pretend uh, that we're the ones who've uh, come up with all these things on our own. Uh, I don't, I don't apologize for that. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I think I heard it said one time by somebody. I said, um, maybe you've heard this: milk many cows, but churn your own butter. There you so go. Yeah. It, it, you know, <laughs> take. But you know, and so the point is, in your study, you are milking many cows, if you will, drawing in all of these things, not seeking to be original or to do your study in isolation from the church and the wonderful gifts that God has given to us. But but what's wonderful is that final sermon, that that is yours, right? No one else has Steve Bradley's sermons on the Sermon on the Mount or, you know, whatever. So I That's think right. it's a, a great balance between still being able to be original and yet as you said, unapologetically drawing on the gifts God has given. So I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I don't, I don't apologize for, for studying all those guys and interacting uh, at all either. Um, so no, that was good and helpful. So the next question that, that I was curious about, I just, I haven't asked, got to ask any guys about this yet, <laughs> but it kind of has to do with um, and I think this will be helpful also just for any younger guys who could be listening uh, to this is just how do you as a pastor and especially an, ex you know, relatively at least experienced pastor think through balancing um, purity and unity, both in your local congregation as well as in the broader denomination and even in the church at large. And what I'm thinking about with that is that these are often the two tensions, right? Purity in unity, and our our testimony has a helpful way of putting it in in chapter twenty five, paragraph fourteen, when we when we say that divisions that separate believers into denominations um, mar the unity of the church and are due to error and sin. And then we go on to say it's the duty of all denominations, which are true churches of Christ, to seek reconciliation and union. Such organizational unity, however, should be sought only on the basis of truth and scriptural order. And so we talk about there, in, in many ways, we shouldn't seek. Yes, we want both unity and purity, but we shouldn't be seeking one at the sake of the other, and, and we should be seeking, ultimately, unity on the basis of 
purity. I think personally that's what Ephesians 4.13 is getting at when we, we read till we all come to the unity of the faith and things like that. But, um, you know, there there is the practical side of maintaining unity as well that we get earlier in Ephesians 4 when we're called with all lowliness and gentleness uh, and long-suffering to bear with one another in love and to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, yeah, just curious how you work through some of those issues of unity and purity and and perhaps even, and you can take all of this how you want, ask me to repeat whatever, but as I'm trying to clarify what I'm asking, I'll just kind of throw in kind of the sub-questions that I was getting at as well. So kind of how you would, in your answer to this counsel, a young pastor specifically in balancing things, for instance, like his own uh, personal convictions, which which may be either out of accord with our standards. So, for instance, maybe he's got an exception uh, to women deacons, yeah. you know. But our denominational position uh, is is that we believe in women deacons. So, so balancing that purity and unity as far as that goes, and then also perhaps even with personal convictions that that our standards don't address. So, let's say. Uh, he's got personal convictions on head covering. Uh, how do you how do you balance that? You know, um, he can think that the scriptures teach it, but it's still just a fact that our standards don't don't come down on one side of that issue necessarily or the other. And then also in related, just kind of in your local congregation as an experienced pastor, how do you think through and counsel others, even just members, in maintaining their personal convictions on perhaps more secondary issues like holidays and head coverings and things like that while also um maintaining their belief but also maintaining fellowship with one another applying some of those passages uh, that i just mentioned from ephesians 4 well, so that was, was such a, a lot, long but... that was such a long answer i think uh, it's time to land a plane this has been another episode of the blue banter <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, just hoping that by uh, some of that blabbing, maybe it would become more clear maybe what I was getting at. No, but. it was. It was very helpful, actually. The more I was listening to you, at first I was thinking a certain thing, and then sure. I think you helped me to, to to think through how to approach it. Sure. Um, well, you know, first of all, as it, let's take it from the 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 end to the, back to the front. Um, counseling a young man who's about to enter his pastorate, um, and he has these strong convictions about various things. Um, uh, I mean, I was that man. Uh, I mean, I, I had strong convictions uh, about things like head coverings and uh, wine and communion and uh, all things like this. But uh, I did, I do remember um, while I was in seminary, uh, I think it was Pastor Robeson. Uh, and uh, he, uh, really impressed upon me early on that uh, to be mindful of the fact that we're called to be shepherds, not cowboys. Hmm. So we lead the flock. We are called to lead a flock to the waters, to, to the, to the, to the place of nourishment, right? To the green grass. Um, that's very different. Leading sheep is very different than driving cattle. Uh, so you got to be really mindful of the fact that, that, you know, we are to walk in the ways of our shepherd, our good shepherd, and how kind and how gracious and how loving and how patient and long-suffering he is with us. That um, that he doesn't just spank us right away or tell us, you know, either, you know, <laughs> get right or get out kind of a thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's more just um, a leading and guiding. And I think 
a, a young man needs to go into a, a pulpit and recognize that there's already a history there. You're not the first. You, well, you're pro- you know you might be the first guy if you're a church planter, but but you're probably not the first guy who's been pastoring that flock. And so there's all kinds of stuff that the, the congregation is used to doing a certain way. Uh, and they have reasons perhaps why they do it. Maybe they don't know the reasons why they do it. Maybe it's just been the way it's been done ever since it was started, you know, a uh, hundred years ago. Uh, whatever the case may be, you you got to go into that situation. You need to be able to read the flock. You can't you can't bust onto the scene and say there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, you know, we we I know you've been doing things a certain way, but now things are about to change. No, you need to love that flock. They need to you need to earn their trust. You need, I mean, it's like, it's like anything in life. It's about, you know, with, when it comes to relationships, people trust others with whom you've built a a bond with. And I think it takes some time. I mean, years, uh, oftentimes for, for that sort of, um, bond to be built up to where you can start to ask questions and start to present things to your session. And say, hey, brothers, what do you think? It, it, would it be all right if we start to talk about this matter or that matter? Uh, would you be open to me possibly uh, teaching a, a Sabbath school class on a certain subject? Um, can we start to do those kinds of things? You know, and uh, and and uh, if they say yes, well, then you have opportunity to do that. But again, you do it by way of leading. You don't go in and say we've already made it. You don't make the decision for it. Let me give you an example here at, at Providence. We it took us many years, but eventually we started to go to wine and communion. And, um, uh, you know, there was some people thought, well, you know, is that really something that should be dealt with at all? I mean, what's the, you know, is it, is, is that going to disrupt the, the, the unity and the peace like you're talking about in the congregation? But the elders uh, thought about it and we prayed about it and we didn't think it would cause any disharmony within the congregation. And we didn't make a decision as to what we have decided, what we did instead was we said, let's have some Sabbath school classes. Let's teach on the subject. Let's give plenty of opportunity for people to ask questions and attempt to answer those questions uh, as we're able. Um, and then once we feel that there's been you know, enough uh, of time and, and effort put into that, that if we've come to the conclusion that it won't disrupt the harmony of, of the congregation, we can go in this direction. And that's precisely what we did. And uh, we did. We moved over to, for instance, wine and communion. But I, it wasn't because we thought that um, uh, it was sinful to have grape juice. Uh, it was uh, getting back to your question about purity. Uh, for us, it was more a matter of uh, on the scale of purity from our perspective. It's not that grape juice is impure or in, or invalidates the sacrament. We would never say that. Um, but we would say, from our perspective, we think a more pure way of of administering the sacrament would be to use wine, um, and and so that's the approach we took. Um, and um, uh, so you know there there's a you know the old Latin term of with regard to the uh, the essence, the being of the church, and the well being of the church. Uh, you still have the thing, the essence of the thing, even though it's not as pure as it could be, and that's the case for every church, ours included, right, and our congregation even included. Uh, we we uh, we have the essence of of being a church, and we are constantly seeking God's grace to grow in purity as we're able to do that. So I think uh, with regard to other things like uh, head covering, so in our congregation we're probably mixed, almost maybe maybe as big as half and half hmm. of people who do cover and who don't. And I've taught maybe uh, once on this, uh, probably 
eight years ago in a dinner and doctor meeting in, in um, somebody's house. And uh, that was fine, uh, but I've never preached on it. I've never taken the pulpit and preached on it. I haven't gone through 1 Corinthians. And uh, so until or unless I'm specifically asked by the elders or somebody to preach a sermon on that, I'm not going to just out of the blue say, because this is my conviction, this is what I'm going to preach to the congregation. I mean, I'll take it in stride. And as people have uh, uh, had that question about the practice, they've come to me, they've talked to me, they've we've, we've talked through things. Other people who have the conviction uh, talk with others who don't. And it's really peaceful. Nobody, uh, as far as I know, nobody is hurt over the fact that some people cover and some people don't. We've truly left it up to the individuals. You, 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 you know, you work that out, and wh whatever you're convicted of, and however you do it is, you know, good. It, it's you do you do that before the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so I've I've found that most of the typical con typically controversial areas have not uh, led to disharmony in this congregation. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the case in every congregation, but I think it all starts with, again, earning the trust of the people. When the people see that you're a mature brother in the Lord and that you're not just getting, uh, you've not just come here to 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 radicalize or to, or to just use this as a, as a, as a, um, as a, what a soapbox for you to just kind of get on top of and just Say, hey, here's all the areas of reform. We're gonna we're gonna be the most reformed church uh, congregation in our denomination. No, I mean I'm not about that. I'm I'm more about personally wanting to see people grow in grace, grow in their love for the Lord, do these things out of a out of love for for Christ, uh, not because other people are doing it, not because the pastor's doing it, not because he encourages or uh, that he would uh, look down on me if I don't do it. That's certainly not the case. We we uh, we love. Uh, there's a lot of love in this congregation, and I think because of that, and it stems uh, from the session. The session really sets the, the the bar for that. I think, and there's such peace and harmony within our session. Uh, and our my brothers, I mean, I thank God for them all the time, uh, because if you got peace at that level, uh, then there's always hope for keeping that peace at the broader level. But if you're messed up at your session, uh, you're probably not going to be able to address any of these things. And it's better just left untouched than to cause, a stir, you know, to, to poke at the bear, uh, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, no, that, that's helpful. Um, and in, in some ways, this ties directly into the next question that we have. I mean, you, you've spoken more to the general. Now I'll ask maybe more of a particular question. I want to give a little bit of a caveat before I do, um, particularly if there's those in the Marian congregation who are listening to this. This is not something that I am currently thinking about, just so everybody <laughs> knows. Um, but when it comes to the the idea um, or the practice of the frequency of the Lord's Supper, you know, there's a various... Uh, views on uh, frequency, whether that's weekly or um, monthly or doing communion seasons once a year, or, um, twice a year, those kinds of things. So um, how would you encourage a new pastor um, to be thinking through these issues, both from a theological perspective and from a practical logistical perspective? Well, that's, um, yeah, Aaron, I think the, the practical, from the practical side, I think I would uh, begin with the same advice I gave earlier, and that is, mm -hmm. um, if you're going to a congregation that already has a certain schedule, leave it alone. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, don't mess with it for a while, right? Uh, get a feel for uh, the body life. Get a feel for you know the flow of of the months and what have you. Um, but if you have a conviction, uh, one way or the other, whether it's more frequent or less frequent, I think you got you. You have to begin with your elders. You have to sit down and speak with your ruling elders, 
and get a feel for like, is this uh, is this a matter that is going to disrupt the harmony of the church? Um, you know, I I, th I think more and more it, it, these are these can so easily become hot button topics, mm -hmm. and it, it's sad. I mean, the very the very sacrament that is meant to express unity in Christ um, is so often used to cause such disharmony mm -hmm. and disunity. And that's a shame. I mean, the Lord, you know, himself prayed that we would be one as he is one. I mean, this is something we know that's God's will for us is to, to be in harmony and to be at peace with, with each other. And uh, I just, it breaks my heart to see so many people wanting to, to banter about with regard to something like the frequency of communion. I mean, I don't, I don't get it personally. I don't have a strong conviction one way or the other. I, uh, I, I, I know I'm not inclined towards um, seasonal or, uh, you know, um, quarterly uh, communion that's just uh, i've not been persuaded that that's the way to go but neither have i been persuaded to go weekly um so we've taken sort of a, a middle of the ground approach we have every other week <laughs> i've not <laughs> heard we that before and we don't have a yeah. theological reason for this i mm -hmm. mean we can tell you this is the scriptures would have us to do it this way it is more along the lines of it fits really well within the body life of this congregation mm -hmm. and so we have um we swap we swap each lord's day one lord's day will have two services and in the second service the lord's supper will be observed and then in the alternate weeks we have sabbath school classes mm -hmm. um during the afternoon uh so and we have a fellowship lunch every week so it's morning worship, fellowship lunch, and either second service with the supper or Sabbath school. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's just, a, it works really well for us. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it also doesn't burn out our teachers for Sabbath school. It gives them also, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off, Aaron. No, it, it almost sounds like uh, you have frequent communion seasons. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, so what What does, um if, if you've got a service, that you're doing uh, communion and what, what does that service look like for you guys there in Providence? Yeah. So it's a, it's a, essentially just a regular worship service with the Lord's supper at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we'll, uh, I'll preach it all the same elements of worship, you know, all the same order, basic, basic order, same order of worship. It just included with that before the, uh, before the final Psalm and benediction, we, we have the Lord's supper. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is somewhat just related to what you just said there. Uh, so what what time would like the evening service, or it's probably not evening, it's probably more of like an afternoon service. It's afternoon. Right? Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Gotcha. It's uh, one o'clock. Yep. Okay. Is, is that ever hard for you coming off of a, coming off of a full meal like that and then climbing back in the pulpit? I think it's harder for the people listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody involved. <laughs> Yeah, for yeah. me, it's not a big deal. I don't always eat. Uh, I, okay. I, I I do a, a good bit of coffee drinking uh, you know, throughout the Lord's Day. Sure. So, uh, yeah, no, it's not hard for me to get in the pulpit. It makes for a long day, no doubt. But, um, but uh, no, I, I do feel more for the people because I can see, it, you know, the food sets into the stomach and oh, you're yeah. tired pretty quickly. And so uh, I haven't been very good about it. Uh, but I do try to shorten the sermons. I mean, I, I my morning service, I can go easily an hour. Sure. Um, so afternoon, when we're having the Lord's Supper, I try to be mindful to not go to that length with the folks and to try to get it to a half hour, 40, 40 minutes max. But um, I'm not always good at that. Right. No, that, that's good. It just kind of makes me think, too, about like um, for presbytery exams, uh, 
you always knew you were probably going to get a harder exam if it was like first thing in the morning or something, guys more energetic, the coffee's <laughs> fully kicked in, you know, but if you could get a late exam, though, it may be kind of hard for you because you may be too nervous to eat or something. You may have guys who are a little more, uh, just lethargic from the turkey or whatever. And, and, you know, maybe a little, maybe a little nicer to you. So yeah, no, that you, was all. Yeah. Go on. Yeah, I was going to say, if you got the choice, you want to wait till the last day for your exam. Yeah. Or anxious yeah. to get home. You know, got- yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No, that was all, that was all really good. Um, for whatever reason I had, I had an inkling that, that you would be a good guy to answer, uh, those last two questions. And at least from my perspective, you didn't disappoint. That was all. That was all very helpful. Um, so yeah, we do always like to end with our kind of fun theological mystery question. And you will be the third man to answer this question. And Eric, I don't think so. I think fourth? the fourth. Yeah, right. I thought we just had I thought Jason Camry was our first and he was been our last he, interview. He he might have been. I don't know. I'm pretty I was thinking sure. It was I'm pretty sure we're only at three, so right. I'm not going to ask you I'll, to correct me because you don't I'll, even know what's going on here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think I could be wrong. Aaron could be right. Um, but so far as I can remember, we're at a tie. We're at a one-to-one on this as far as the answer goes, and that's what we like to do with these questions, kind of pick something that's fun, not controversial you know, in a serious sense, uh, but, but we like to try and settle debates with this. So Due to the episode with uh, Colin Samuel that will be out um, next week, it will already be out by the time we get this going, we interviewed him on uh, the 10-part podcast series he did on the occult and UFOs and everything. So that's kind of, knowing we were going to have him, we, we wanted to ask this question. So in 1 Samuel 28, you have the episode with the Witch of Endor, and she calls up Samuel... for Saul. And there's debate about whether that's actually Samuel who gets called up or whether it's a demonic uh, impersonation or a demonic deception. And so uh, we're just curious to settle the debate on who is it really in 1 Samuel 28. And and we've had guys before, if if, if it's one of those, you're like, I have just not thought enough about that to come down one way or the other. That's totally fine. But if you do have a thought on it, um, either way, we'd we'd like to hear Pastor Steve Bradley's thoughts on the identity of Samuel or not. There in First Samuel twenty eight. All right. Well, that is a has a that is a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, I uh, <clears throat> I tend to think uh, I tend to think it's it's not uh, it's not Samuel. I tend to think it is a de- demonic impersonation of him. Um, and for a few different reasons, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, um, you know, we're, we're uh, people who are in glory are not at the beck and call of anything uh, here on earth. And I mean, at the most we, we ever see with regard to um, uh, that sort of thing happening is angelic beings uh, coming uh, to earth. Uh, so certainly spiritual beings that can uh, take the form of uh, various uh, people and things, I would imagine, um, as we see that happening, even Back in uh, Genesis, when uh, Christ is with the, the pre-incarnate Christ is with the two angels, I mean they look like men, uh, so we know they can take the form of men. And so it's not uh, it's not a stretch in my mind, at least, to believe that uh, a demon could have taken the form of Samuel um, and uh, and and then uh, appeared at uh, at the call of the the witch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I mean, the Lord Himself says it, it's a, it's a sin uh, to for these things to occur, for even to go to a, a witch and to. Um, so, I mean, why would we think the Lord is going to somehow do something good in, in that light? I, it doesn't ring right to me. Now, I could be wrong. I wouldn't die on that hill. Uh, but it, it seems to me that that's the more um, uh, the best interpretation, at least, that I can come up with of what happened there. Yeah, yeah. No, you're uh, you're in agreement with with Colin Samuel on that. He he noted, too, that. Um, and I have not looked into this to my, myself, but I'll take his word for it. He was noting that a lot of the reformers as well ha have noted that kind of the 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 prophecy there of of what Samuel tells Saul it doesn't happen exactly, and so that would that would more line up with um, it being a demon who has superior intellect uh, to 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 men, and so is able to in a sense forecast things with with some degree of accuracy but lacks uh, the infallibility that would perhaps come if Samuel was uh you know had come to to bring a message of the Lord. And yeah. so so that's another argument that um that I hadn't heard before last I I had kind of uh heard how you just put it forth there and and yeah. find that somewhat persuasive myself but but Colin mentioned that as well that I'd be interested to look into and assuming that's true uh, I think that would be another pretty strong argument in favor of the d demonic deception view. Yeah, and I all day long would defer to Colin. Uh, that's his. <laughs> that's his wheelhouse, man. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right, I have to go on record, Joseph. You were you were correct. Okay. Oh, all right. Uh, with that note, and my uh, uh, <clears throat> being humbled before the three listeners of this podcast. <laughs> Although, actually, so I I googled. Uh, this podcast and you know out of the millions and millions of podcasts that exist we're we're in the top five percent so how about that wow <laughs> yeah i don't know all right but doesn't matter this has been another episode of the blue banter podcast the podcast where we uh, interview the pastors of the rpcna introducing them to the members of the rpcna a pastoral anthology if you will if you like this podcast you can rate it and review us on itunes or spotify or whatever podcast catcher you use, you can share this episode on social media. If you have a question you'd like us to ask the pastors that we have on this podcast, you can email us at bluebanter@gmail.com. Uh, or if you'd like to suggest we interview your pastor on the podcast, you can send us an email there as well. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.